very long and challenging passage in front of us. So I'm going to ask you to work hard with me this morning. Have the Bibles in front of you. And my voice is going to struggle a little bit. I'm dealing with a bit of losing my voice over the weekend. So I'm going to work um, hard myself. And in all this, we need God's help. So I'm going to quickly pray and we'll look at this passage. Lord, pour out the spirit of wisdom and understanding that in a world filled with evil, we will see the assurance of salvation and victory of the cross by the eyes of faith. Amen. Now, sometimes, when we stop for a moment and look around the world, or when we hear really disturbing news by somebody, it's in those times that when we recognize that the world we are living in is not all that good. One of our prayer points, I think, at the back, are written about the Poland Missile Strike. And we know uh, our world is filled with wars, oppression, poverty, corrupt government, child labor. But in those times, we look at our world and say, where is God in all this mess? Now, the trouble feels more overwhelming when these awful evils happen within the life of the church. Uh, when you hear about the awful child sex abuse stories by the clergy, uh, financial misconduct, manipulation of the weak and the vulnerable, things that ought not to happen within the body of Christ, yet it does happen, doesn't it? And in those times, if you want to lift your eyes to heaven and say, God, where is the gospel? Is the power of the gospel real? Now, this section of the judge's narrative, I think, if you're reading it carefully and thoughtfully, certainly forces you to ask these questions. It's full of ugly stuff, isn't it? Power-mongering, backstabbing, brutality, mass murder, and destruction. Uh, now, what's worse, the trouble in Judges 9 does not come from the outside. You notice that for the first time in Book of Judges, the trouble is not from the outside. There's no Midianite, there's no Moabite, they're not these things, there's no Canaanite threatening. It's the people of God themselves. Uh, the, the trouble is from the within, the so-called people of God. Where is God in all this? Now, in customary fashion, the book of Judges gives us a surprising answer to our questions. If we've grown used to, unlikely saviors thus far, the left-handed Ehud, the reluctant Barak, uh, the questionable origin of Shamda, God turns up another notch in the present cycle. He can even override and channel the actions of evil men to accomplish his purposes. The evil of Shemites, idolatry, and thankless rejection of God will be justified, evil Abimelech's fury. Yet at the same time, in turn, the murderous Abimelech, uh, or I think we could even say satanic Abimelech, because Satan was the murderer from the beginning, isn't it? In any sort of a murderous figure in the Old Testament Bible, I think we are to be reminded of Satan himself. Uh, himself will be crushed to death by Shekinah. Now, ultimately, evil, deed of the world or from within, will not have the last say because the risen Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, first and the last, the beginning and the end. The God of peace will soon cross Satan. Under but before we get there, we need to feel the full force of the disaster that satanic Abimelech brought 
in order to fully appreciate the victory of the cross. Now let's pick it up from chapter 8, verse 29. This is the back story of the disaster, pointing to Gideon, the seeds of disaster. Verse 29, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Uh, the narrator reminds us of Gideon's achievements. Jeroboam, in other words, Balfire, that's what his name means, acted in good faith by not assuming kingship, but he went to his own house. Instead of living in a palace and ruling over others, he recognized God's kingship over his people, as we saw in last week's passage, verse 22, and he went to his own house. So far, so good, right? But things uh, begin to look a bit out. Uh, verse 30, now Gideon, I do find that interesting. I, I think biblical narrators are such good storytellers, and picking up on these little details and reflecting about it, I think, makes you a better reader and, and engage with the biblical text more. So, uh, what I'm getting at is, in verse 29, he said, Jeroboam. In verse 30, suddenly he says, Gideon. Now, you know what's going on there? Is he perhaps saying, uh, is the narrator using a different name, but saying, yes, he was Jeroboam, one who fought against Baal, yet also a very flawed natural Gideon. And in this case, his flaw was, he had 70 sons. His own offspring, four, he had many wives. A God's purpose for marriage has been monogamy from the beginning. It was for one man and one woman. Polygamy is a result of the fall, expression of man's selfishness and disobedience against God's word. Every polygamy in the Bible is filled with troubles without exception. It was for Abraham, with Sarah and Hagar. It was for Jacob, with Rachel and Leah. Uh, it was for Elkanah, with Hannah and Penina. You cannot love two wives. There is a reason why marriage is a symbol of Christ's love towards his people, the church. Your heart is divided when you have two wives. Christ only loves one wife, his church. Polygamy was also especially forbidden for powerful rulers, according to Deuteronomy chapter 17, 17. Because many wives, along with wealth, usually meant making foreign alliances, and subsequently, many gods in the same house and going outside the worship. And that was King Solomon's great pitfall, wasn't it? Uh, here, Gideon looks much like Solomon. He has many wives, and in the previous verses tell us, the effort that he made became a snare to him and all his life. Now, what's more, verse 31, and his concubine who was in Shechem, uh, Narayah tells us he even had a concubine who lived in a different city. What happened there? Uh, we don't know all the details, but you want to ask him. Did he just go to another city for a visit? And even there, did he acquire, took for himself a woman, and then he left her there, just as a concubine. She also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. The name Abimelech means, Abi means my father, and Melech means king. The name of his son indicates a contradiction between Gideon's public pronouncements and perhaps his private ambition. In the public, when people said, Gideon, you're so great, become a king for us, he said, no, I won't be a king for you. The Lord is the king. Yet he went home and named his son Abimelech, his father is king. That Gideon gave 
his such name shows that his heart has been inspired to some degree by the desire to rule over others as a king. And no father can harbor such desires without his sons picking up. And we see the same principle in the life of David, for instance. David's several wives become Solomon's multitudes. David's adultery of Bethsaida becomes Amnon's rape of Tema. Here's a frightening thought for every parent here. Good, your good looks and intelligence is not the only thing you pass on to your children. The faults and failings of parents are often reproduced and even magnified in your children. And you know what? Children learn far more from your actions than your words. And they live so close enough from you that they can pick up on your secret desires. They can actually see through what really gets your heart excited. They can tell that church is just a Sunday or an hour or two, just the religious moral things that we keep in our house. But in terms of making the real life decisions, in terms of making the real choices of life, they can tell what keeps their parents. Abimelech seems to have picked up the cue from you. Can you imagine Abimelech going up? My name is my father's king. If my father's king, what am I? What Gideon only dreamt in his weaker moments, Abimelech will pursue with disastrous consequence, both for himself and everyone around him. Gideon is not innocent to the disaster that is to come in his life. Now, when we look at Gideon's life, it really is a story of two halves. As a youth, Gideon has been presented as one who provided and saved God's people. And at, at times he was cowardly, but there was an element of genuine and true humility. But over time, his self-deprecation turns to self-aggrandizement, his cowardice to extreme self-confidence, and perhaps a sense of entitlement. This is how much I've done for Israel, and I've deserved this much. Uh, he's the first to confront idolatry by tearing down the altar to Baal. But did you notice he is also the first judge to effect idolatry? Towards the end of his life, he is driven by personal revenge and thirst for power. In Gideon, I think we see the tendency of human heart. What Jesus said in Mark chapter 7 evil that is from within human heart. The desire to become God ourselves. Two application points at this point. First, we need a better savior than Gideon. One who can actually withstand and overcome evil. One who will not take equality with God, something to be grasped. One who will seek not to be served, but to serve, and give his life in service. And second, we should also pray that if God ever puts any of us in a position of authority, that we would never lose servant happiness. And this applies to all of us, but some of you may be thinking, I'm not a leader, and I will never be a leader. But it, it's just like you've never had an opportunity to be an opportunity to be a leader, but that temptation and desire to rule over others and serve our own interests is there for every human being. And it's good to be prepared for that and ask the God to purify our hearts. 
Gideon, despite his flaws, however, we are told in verse 32, and Gideon, the son of Joash, died in good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father, and Ophrah was the Abyssalites. Do you find that surprising, verse 32? I found this surprising when I was reading it for the first time. That Gideon died in an old age indicates that ultimately the end of his life was about receiving God's grace. In other words, despite his failing, God poured out his blessings. Gideon was blessed not because he was a perfect man, but because Christ was the perfect man in his place. And that's been the story of Israel throughout this book of Judges, isn't it? That's one thing you'll remember from the book of Judges. Despite their failings, God still is faithful to his people. And that's the story of every Christian. You know, we are, according to Apostle Paul in Ephesians, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's very difficult to forget. Uh, it's, it, it's easy to forget that privilege and joy. Sometimes living in this world overcome with evil. Now, when we are confronted and weighed down by so many things in life, but that's who we are. But that we are blessed with such every spiritual blessings in heaven and earth, not because you are good, not because you and I deserve it, not because we are better than Israelites, not because we are better than Gideon. It's because despite our failures, because Christ stood in our You and I are saved, loved, and blessed by grace and grace alone. Thanks be to God. But by now, we're very familiar with how God's people respond to God's grace in the book of Judges. Persistent, ungraceful, rebellion and idolatry. So verse 33 continues, As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and poured after the vows and made the vows raise their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubal that is given in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. People of Israel respond to God's grace with evil. You know, at this point, the fast in the radio for Judges, I just want to lift my hands in the air and say, Where is God? Where is the power of the gospel? Is this, is this really happening once again? Gideon's flaws and people's idolatry sets the scene for the disaster that is to come in the following chapter. So, meet Abimelech, power hungry, bramble, point three. Let's have nine verse one. Now, Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them, and to the whole clan of his mother's family, saying he is of all the leaders of Shechem. Now, which is better for you? That all seventy of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. Now, names and locations are very important in the book of Judges. You're reading it on your own. When... Um, in a, in a foreign names or locations occur, they don't just pass over. You grab a Bible dictionary, have a look at it, and see what the significance is. Shechem, very important, is a place where Joshua called all the tribes of Israel for renewal of covenant before entering the promised land and settling. Now that God has brought us 
on this side of Jordan, people have been allocated different lands. And Joshua said, look, remember, this is the covenant. We are here because now God has kept every single one of the promises He has given to our fathers. Now you're going to keep it today. And who are you going to serve? Remember, that, that, that's what happened at Shechem. But verse 4 indicates Shechem now has become a place of Baal-Berith. In other words, worship of idols. The narrator emphasizes this point by repeating the word Baal here in verse 2. Difficult to pick it up in English translation, but the word Baal means master or lord, translated here in verse 2 as leaders. So Abimelech is saying more literally, saying the years of all the Baals of Shechem. And again in verse 3, and his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the years of all the Baals of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. Further, if you notice, Abimelech here refers to his father, not as Gideon, but as Jeroboam. In other words, he's saying, you Shechemites are Baal worshippers. Do you really want, want Baal fires to rule over you? Whereas, I'm one of you, by blood, and also, my loyalty belongs to Baal, just like you. He also suggests, the centralized rule by one man is better than many rulers. Uh, that is typical of pagans, every pagan system that rejects God. Uh, God's way is one God, many rulers. Whereas pagan system is many gods or no gods and one man. Uh, that's how it works in authoritarian government or dictatorship, right? Abimelech grasps power and exalts himself. And I wonder at this point, whether Jesus had Abimelech in his mind when he said these words in Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever wants to be great must be the servant of God. But Abimelech's evil plot sounds good to the evil man of Shechem. They're giving 70 pieces of silver with that blood money. Abimelech kills 70 sons of Jeroboam. Now, I bet they are carefully laid on one stone, one by one, all seven, indicates that this is a bit of a religious overturn. Perhaps they were regarded as human sacrifice to Baal, just as Jeroboam had torn down the altar of Baal and reestablished the worship of Yahweh by sacrificing a bull. Uh, back in Judges chapter 6, verse 25 to 27. So now, sacrifice to Baal is re-established by the sacrifice of Gideon's sons. Now this may sound shocking, but every godless human society is built upon the sacrificial murder of Jews. Nazi government killing off millions of Jews at the altar of racial superiority. Authoritarian government suppression and killing of millions of Christians at the altar of dictatorship. Our Western secular society is killing of billions of unborn children at the altar of personal freedom. Only the kingdom of heaven, unlike the kingdoms of the earth, is built upon the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus 
pours out his own blood for the sins of the world. And upon that rejected stone, now the church is built. Godless society builds at the expense of the vulnerable through murdering and ruling of others. Yet Jesus Christ builds by his own Jesus Christ actually builds by being by his own And that's how church is built even after Jesus, isn't it? Uh, we build our church, we build one another, not by ruling over others like a demon, but we build one another by laying down ourselves for the sake of one another. Now come back to the horror story of that day, uh, rejection of Yahweh and falling out of us, murder of 70 sons of Jeroboam's human sacrifices, and no other place than Jacob. Reading that verse again slowly, your only response is, where is God? Where is the gospel? Now, at the point of this bearing, we're given one additional detail in verse 5, which I bypass. One of the sons of Jeroboam, the youngest, oldest, who has a net for favor in the younger son, doesn't The youngest son, Jotham, survived. And this one man bravely confronts the evils of Abimelech and the man of Shechem by pronouncing judgment on them. So, to parable and prophecy, point three B, there's a couple of Now, he goes to Mount Gerizim in verse 7, and again, the location is important. Uh, this was the place. Moses read out the blessing and curse of the covenant back in Deuteronomy chapter 27. What will Joseph pronounce to Well, he begins by telling a parable about trees. Verse 7, listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, or listen to me, you bowels of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint the king over them, and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. And this parable is fantastic from the beginning. He said, your desire for a king parallels like the trees going out trying to pick a king. In other words, uh, why the heck the trees need a king anyways? You know, what the, what the king of the trees do? Nothing. I mean, trees have their king already, the creator God. Now, that's all the trees need for. It's the God who gives the trees the sunlight. God who waters them with the rain. God looks after them. You have no need for a king as the trees need a king. The three wise trees recognize this. They already have the joy and pleasure of being fruitful in the work that God has given them. All these trees, God has given them the great uh, privilege of producing oil, uh, the vine, vine tree producing wine, figs and producing delicious fruit. But the bramble or thorn bush is unfruitful. It's no good other than flaming fire. Yet this bramble loves the thought of ruling of office. And lastly, he calls the other trees to come and take shade on them. You know? I mean, first of all, all the other trees, they take trees, they have shade themselves. And brambles, they, they don't even have shade. It's a laughable that other trees come take refuge on the moon. The point of Joseph's parable is that good men do not desire to lord it over others. They recognize God's lordship, and they are happy in conducting the service of others. They realize that the word to greatness is service. 
But the bramble represents unfit and ungodly meaning. Fruit is unregenerate nature. The bramble also is a man of wrath. All he's good for is flaming fire. And if things don't go his way, he intends to fire and consume and destruct anything that stands in his way. Jotham says, Abimelech is that bramble, and the men of Shechem are the foolish traits who make bramble their king instead of being faithful to their creator. So Jotham pronounces judgment upon them in verse 20. Let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Bethlehem. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Bethlehem and devour Abimelech. Jotham prophesies the ungodly wrath of evil but for the Israelites at this time, evil seems to have its way. Verse 22, Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. As short as it was, Abimelech got his way. Right? Evil trumped good, at least for these three years. If you're a New Testament reader, three years, three days. In the New Testament, it is a bit similar to the time between Jesus' death and resurrection when evil seems to have trumped over the good. Perhaps, where is God in all this? God seems absent during these three years. If you lived in Israel during these three years, that would be a very, very dark period. The narrator raises this tension by hiding God from our viewpoint as much as he can in the narrative of Joseph chapter 9. Um, did any of you notice, if you read this passage before coming to church today or had read it already in your first book, um, do you know what one of the most frequently repeated words in the book of Joseph is? Uh, one of the most frequently used words in the whole of the book of Joseph thus far is the word Yahweh. Translated as Lord in capital text. But in Jesus chapter 9, that word Yahweh, Lord in capital word, does not happen even once. And the narrator is very, in a very smart storytelling. He almost hides God from the view. Yahweh appeared 103 times between Judges chapter 1 to chapter 8. It's more than 10 times each chapter. From chapter 9, he disappears. Meanwhile, Baal occurs 26 times in this chapter. It's as if you're reading this chapter. Baal, evil readers of Shechem, and Satanic Abimelech run the show. Where is God? Where is the gospel? It is at this very point the narrator lifts our eyes to show us a glimpse of what God is doing in verse 23. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem goes treacherously with Abimelech. God is not absent, nor silent. He can break down, override, and direct even the evil man to judge and to save. Uh, there is an element of mystery here as to how God uses evil to accomplish his purposes. Uh, the Apostle James says God is not evil, nor does he tempt anyone to sin in James chapter 1 verse 13. So it couldn't be that God is the cause of evil. But also, these are already evil men. So you know, 
what is it like to send an evil spirit between two evil men? Perhaps God does not need to actively sow evil in their hearts, seeing as that they're already evil, but simply withdraw his restraining grace from these evil men for self-destruction. I mean, that's what evil people tend to do, right? The pact between mafia, two mafia bosses, um, never lasts very long. It only lasts as long as it is convenient and beneficial to one another. Uh, and as, as soon as that use by date expires, they kill one another. They turn on. And that's what happens between Abimelech and the people of Shechem. Now, suddenly, a new character emerges. Uh, by the name of Gaal, son of Ebed, in verse 26, and starts to incite people against Abimelech. Now, ironically, he revived Abimelech in the house of Gaal, we are told in verse 27. And if you remember, that's the place where Abimelech revived Gideon's sons and made a pact with the leaders of Shechem earlier. Now, furthermore, if you notice, Gaal uses the ethnic card that Abimelech plays against Abimelech is fine. You know what he's saying, you know? If Abimelech is the ethnic card, you know, his fight to you actually is very thick. It's only for a concubine mother. Whereas me and my family, we've been a second all through generations. We're the real second Now, what we see next is a brutal revenge by Abimelech. It's a malice, tribalism, betrayal. There's nothing new about evil, right? What's any mafia videos or movies or shows? It's always the same thing, just different characters. Now, he, now Abimelech comes to Shechem with his army. And Gaal was never going to match Abimelech. Uh, if Abimelech was a bramble, Gaal is a dust. The narrator says he is a son of Ebed. Um, word Ebed means a slave. His name probably, his real name probably wasn't Ebed, but he was known as Ebed because he was a nobody. He was a slave. In other words, the narrator showed us that Carl was a nobody. But even this nobody couldn't respect Bramble. And power hungry men like Abimelech takes reputation very seriously, as we'll see. He's not content to drive out Carl. He destroys the whole city in verse 45. Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city, killed people who were dead. He raised the city and sold it with salt. But that wasn't enough. Abimelech is a very wrathful man. He will kill everyone and destroy everything in his sight. He attacks the temple of Elgarith. Verse 49, so every one of the people cut down his bundle and following Abimelech, put it against the stronghold, and they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the Tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men. Now, perhaps one ironic thing is that Abimelech, follower of Baal, becomes the one who destroys the Baal's temple. Notice that. That's, that's what evil men do. They only care about themselves. That is the heart of pagan religion. It's not about God, but it's about me. Abimelech's religion is himself, his honor, his power, his glory, not Baal, actually. The gods only exist to serve men. That's the question to ask ourselves at this point is, 
What about us? Is, is our religion sometimes look much like a developed religion? Is, is what is at the heart of our religion? God, glory of God, only of Jesus Christ, or is it really about my convenience, my security, and my happiness, and God is there to usher me and help me and my family to have a respectable middle class life in the safe country of Australia? Now, back to Abimelech. He is still not satisfied. He is wrong. Is uncontainable and uncontrollable. He will destroy everything within his reach. Uh, he goes to Sebes, uh, this time in verse 40, probably a next door town. And he tries the same tactic at the Temple of Baal, but only this time an unnamed woman comes out of nowhere uh, with massive biceps. I don't, know, I don't know how she took this millstone up to the top of the, uh, the tower and she throws it. And also, she is a good hitter. She crushes Abimelech's skull. And even as he's dying, Abimelech shows his vanity by trying to save his face. But his humiliating death at the hands of a woman is written in the scripture for all to see. And we see a little bit of a pattern here in the book of Judges. The woman, her own, keeps on coming to save Israel. There's another condemning factor for the people of Israel. That man, man's role is to be a savior and messiah, hence why husbands are to lay down their life and love their husband, uh, love their wives, I'm sorry, and to uh, make sure their families present before God's side a perfect impurity. But in judges, men cannot do that. Yet, God will be speaking the prophets women to protect his people until the right man becomes. So the horrific story of Abimelech comes to an end in verse 56. But God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads and upon them in the curse of Jotham, the son of Jotham. Later we finish. Where is the gospel in all this horrific story? How are we to see the gospel in this story of betrayal, violence, murder, and destruction? Now consider the true son of the king, Jesus Christ, in light of Abimelech. Actually, like Abimelech, and even more than Abimelech, Jesus Christ was rejected and betrayed by his own people. He came to his own, but the apostles don't remind us that his own did not receive him. Yet Jesus did not retaliate. Abimelech's fury was uncontrollable and uncontainable. With his high view of himself as ruler over others, he demanded that his wrath be satisfied at all costs. And that's what we tend to do, right? When we get angry, when you get your praise or, or, or angry at your spouse or your children, it's often uncontainable, and we demand justice. We want our boss to be satisfied at all costs. God had every reason to demand his justice. God had every reason to satisfy his wrath by putting all of us to judgment. Yet he did not do that. He contained 
Jesus brought and was patiently taught until the right moment he gave himself or the peace was in the person of his son Jesus Christ who drank the cup of God's wrath in our place. Abimelech's death here, stoning, was the death of capital punishment in the Old Testament. It was a sign of curse and judgment by God. Abimelech's death by stoning shows God's rejection of him. Yet there is another form of capital punishment in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy reminds us, cursed is the man who is hung up on the tree. Betrayed and rejected by his people and by the deeds of evil that Jesus Christ hung on that cursed cross. But unlike Abimelech, Jesus did not receive God's cross because of his own sins. Though he was bearing our sins, our evil, the evils of this world, our idolatry, our unrighteous anger, our vain self glory, our adulterous hearts. Through the evil of the cross, Jesus destroyed the power of the evil once and for all. And little did Satan know, just at that point he thought he won by his evil, by his deception, by his deceiving of people into betrayal and murdering them all, the true Son of God and released the false Son, Barabbas. Now, but it was at that point Jesus was judging evil decisively once and for all. When Barabbas saw Jesus on that cursed cross on that good Friday and wondered, Where is God in all this? Jesus proclaimed, it is finished. Christ was slain to be the foundation stone upon which the church is built, and Christ will now be the stone that will crush everyone who raises their arm against Jesus. The rejected stone now has become foundation stone and the judgment stone. Brothers and sisters, we still live in the world of sin and not evil. But evil will not have the last say. God of peace will soon cross Satan under us. That's great. Heavenly Father, in this fallen world, we are often frightened by evil, and we ourselves are often overcome by it. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. Who faced your wrath that we may find your love? Who faced your rejection that we may share in his resurrection? May the power of his gospel be our strength and be our comfort in times of evil in his present age. We yearn for the day when Satan will be crushed under our feet once and for all.